Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, I'm Steve Bryant. I write and draw Athena Voltaire, an adventure comic set in the 1930s. The book is full of lost cities and mystical artifacts, and it stars an aviatrix taking on supernatural creatures and Nazis. I hate those guys. The Indiana Jones movies ignited my love for this period, and at a young age, I was disappointed to learn that archaeologists don't really spend most of their time dodging traps or punching Nazis. But in my comic research, I've learned there have been some real-life guys similar to Indy, and that the Nazis really did embrace some bizarre beliefs about the supernatural. Okay, so I heard, so we're on the bus. My dad to Dallas. For One time, when I was little, uh, my dad, a, when I was little, my dad, church, a man came out of the restaurant. Yeah, it's just a story. The Great Quest, the Holy Grail, Dr. Jones. For nearly 3,000 years, man has searched for the lost Ark of the Covenant. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. Not something to be taken lightly. No one knows its secrets. Jones, do you realize what the Ark is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. It is desired above all treasures on Earth by those who are good, trust me, and those who are evil. Everything. Yes. Nazis. I hate these guys. Raiders of the Lost Ark. A quest for the Grail. It's not archaeology. It's a race against evil. Germany. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. Movie edition. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again and what our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. And this week we're diving into a movie. We haven't done a movie in forever. No, it's time for another. It's just a movie. And it's actually just a trilogy this time. It's just a bunch of amazing movies. Yeah. It's not Star Wars. Sorry. That is just a story. What? Although it is based. On the hero's quest. Maybe we should do an episode about that. We could always. Maybe later. Anyway, in relation to to that, George Lucas is involved. Oh, dear. As well as Steven Spielberg. This has all the makings of something that we're going to give our money to. And it's Indiana Jones. Indy! I love Indy! I dressed up as Indy when you're for a convention. So yeah, I love Indiana Jones. These movies are amazing. I watched them as a kid and then I watched them again in a screenwriting class that I took. And they're basically perfect movies. 
Right. Will Eisner, um, the head of Disney, actually said it was one of the best scripts he's ever read. So they're really great examples of structure and formatting, and they have all the ingredients of commercial success, as well as having a lot of really strong foundations in movie tradition, kind of appealed to the commercial audiences and the critical audiences. It was really well received by both, especially. Yeah, the Uh, first movie was nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, the first movie was especially well received. And won four Oscars. Four Oscars for Indiana Jones. Amazing. Of course, the movie was a huge success, mm-hmm. but like you said, it was based on Lucas and Spielberg's love of these 1930s and 40s old action movies and serials that they grew up watching. What's a serial? So a serial, which is like a serialized storytelling, is something that would play in small segments of story before longer movies or feature films. Okay. So these are, like, episodic. They were shown to make people come back to the theater weekly. Right, right? they'd have, like, cliffhangers. You wouldn't know if the hero was going to survive. The hero was going to survive. No, you don't know if he was going to survive. The boulder might get him. The hero is going to survive. But okay, I'll go there. Flash Gordon was a serial. The Superman cartoons were serials. Cool. Was that the... George Reeves Superman? There was. That also was a serial. There were also Batman serials. Okay, cool. Which are awesome. I'm on board. By the way. YouTube party, YouTube party. Eventually, a branch of the serials began featuring these adventurous archaeologists, which is kind of that prototype pulp explorer that we get, right? Right, and they'd always be in a suit with a hat. With a hat, you like say. a fedora. Like a fedora, you say. And they would be, of course, like exploring these... <laughs> Mines and fighting off natives with their cunning. Their daring do. And always wearing a suit and being a gentleman and getting the lady at the end. Oh, yes. Womanizers. Like I said, the movie was a huge blockbuster. They spent about $20 million, which was actually like three times more than they'd originally planned on spending for the movie. They were going to. I guess I see a pattern happening here. Yeah, they were going to do it low budget and it just it skyrocketed to $20 million, which is not that much the movie's great i guess it has all the pieces of action we're talking about the women that were in these old movies mm-hmm. and spielberg definitely cast a woman that fit that physical and voice type i always mm-hmm. felt she has that and that's karen allen karen allen she's so awesome but she has that kind of gravelly kind of 40s 50s voice mm-hmm. that dialect that uh people like Franklin Roosevelt and Catherine Hepburn were famous for. And she was... A fox? A stone-called fox? What? what uh, a hard-ass. Oh, yeah, that too. I mean, she was a fox, for sure. <laughs> but she was a hard-ass. No, she, she punched tough. the guy in a bar. She had drinks him under the table, literally. Is that where that phrase comes from? Yeah, no, her first moment on screen, I'm going to say, is probably cooler than Indy's. I'm going to say it. Like, she's introduced as a tough broad straight from the beginning you know you don't have any moment of like he's gonna have to step in and save her you know there's no right she's in nepal she's drinking with these big guys drinks them under the table punches him in the face yeah Yeah, it's great definitely a departure from the damsel in distress of the early serials so kudos there boys so one thing that makes the film so great is It comes after this moment in history where we've seen our heroes fall. We've been through Vietnam. We've been through Nixon. 
moral ambiguity is spreading to younger and younger people and appearing more in entertainment intended to entertain younger and younger people. And Spielberg and Lucas hit a really great idea when they decide to make the bad guys really, really bad. You mean Nazis? I mean Nazis. I hate Nazis. That's what Harrison Ford says. Yeah, so they take the Nazi idea. And it's great because, you know, nobody is going to be like, I don't really care for the way that the Nazis were portrayed in the film. I don't feel they've gotten a fair shake. Yes, could you make them more human, please? No, no one's going to say that. Everyone's like, Nazis? I hate Nazis. So they get to be really bad. Almost comically. Oh. Ridiculously bad. If their mustaches went any further past their nose, they would definitely twirl them. So another tenet of the movie mm. is that he's an archaeologist. Yes. And that he is hunting for these relics that in all the movies kind of have mystical powers. He's looking for supernaturally powered, famous historical artifacts. And people call them MacGuffins, but I think that's debatable. So what's a MacGuffin? A MacGuffin is the thing they're after, according to Mr. Hitchcock, who coined the term. It's the thing that the people are looking for. And it's usually not that important to the plot, other than the fact that they're looking for it. Like, in my mind, a MacGuffin is almost a trick of a screenwriter. It's something that's there that could be anything. Right, moves the plot along. Yeah, it's a plot device. Right, and, like, the best example is the Maltese Falcon. Right, where that's the name of the movie and kind of not a thing at all. Yeah, while it moves the plot along, it doesn't actually play into the plot. So, in my opinion, my humble opinion, a MacGuffin can't melt the faces off the bad guy at the end. Or provide a test that proves that the character's a hero. I agree. It's like... Are these MacGuffins? But I think, you know, an interesting point about the movies, especially Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first film, is that the actual main characters don't play into the plot at all. No. The exact same things in the movie would have happened without the two main characters. The Nazis still would have found the Ark. They still would have opened it. And they still would have gotten their faces melted. Yeah. Yeah. But it's fun! <laughs> Who cares? This movie's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Let's take a closer look at the relics that they're after, shall we? Sure. So in the first film, they're after the Ark of the Covenant. What do you know about the Ark of the Covenant, Jacob? Why do I always get stuck with the religious stuff? Because you you have Catholic guilt and you'll research these more meticulously than I will. Fine. So the Ark of the Covenant is a real thing. Is it? Yeah. Okay. It really existed, for sure. Okay. As it existed as much as anything in the Bible existed. Okay. But I think of all things, it probably existed. Now, did it have its magical, mystical powers? Huh. I don't know. We need a time travel for that. Oh, we could just use the chronovisor. Oh, damn it. You're right. <laughs> Should have thought of that. It was created by Moses from plans given to him by God to hold the remains of the Ten Commandments. God was so, like, interactive during that period. I mean, he gave Noah the plans for the Ark. He gave Moses the plans for the Ark. Maybe there were... Wait. Wait, was he just an Ark plan maker and not... (laughs) He was just, like, big on making stuff. I mean, made the whole, like, world thing. Yeah, he was, like... He was in a very active period. If he was an artist, this would be, you know, this would be dubbed, like, the creation period or something. Oh, for sure. And then he moved into the Ark period, and then he moved into, like, the destruction of the earth period or he's going to oh, that was his rebellious phase yeah i digress and so it was made of gold-plated acacia 
It was a chest with cherubs on top, and it was always carried by staves. It's a stave. Yeah, so it would have two large wooden rods Uh, that went through golden loops on the sides of the ark to be carried. Because you know what happened if you touched it? Your face would melt off like a Nazi? You'd die. No melting, I don't think. No melting is mentioned in the Bible, to my knowledge. Well, when I pull up my chronovisor and I tune in, I will definitely ask someone. Can you ask people questions through the chronovisor? Mm-mm. Okay, we're going to have to invent something else then. Like a telephone. Chrono Bluetooth? Good plan. So it was carried by the Levites in advance of the people marching of the Israeli army during the 40 years of wandering. So they again, wandered with the ark for 40 years? Yeah. That sounds practical. So, you know, it was given mystical powers to help the Israelis with their many trials and tribulations. Okay. So, like, at one time they were trying to cross the Jordan River, and as the Levites stepped into the river, it stopped flowing, and they were able to cross with no problem. Of course, everyone knows the story of Jericho, where the city was surrounded by a great wall. God told them to walk around the wall for seven days. With the ark and blow horns mm-hmm. and shout, and the walls would come down, and they did. Actually, I saw a thing on the History Channel where they really did fall. Like they can prove that the walls fell. That's interesting. Yeah. I also saw something on, on the History Channel where they found Bigfoot. Okay, you're right. <laughs> it was kept with the Israelis for a long period of time. They passed the King David, and then his son Solomon built the temple. Okay, I feel like I've heard these names before, yeah. And created the Holy of Holies. What is that? It was within the temple. It was a special room to house the Ark of the Covenant. Only sanctified priests could enter on certain days, and through it they could communicate with God. How? God. (laughs) Okay. And eventually, the Israelis were conquered by the Babylonians in 587 BC, leading to the diaspora. From then on, they don't know what happened to it. Well, obviously, the Nazis did know what happened to it, and they melted their faces off with it. The Babylonians could have taken it, of course, because mm-hmm. they destroyed the temple. They took all the good things. There's actually a verse from the Bible saying, And they took all the holy vessels of the Lord, both great and small, with the vessels of the Ark of God and the king's treasures, and carried them away into Babylon. Okay, so the last known address is Babylon. Maybe. Or... Josiah, the king of Judah, may have taken it away and hidden it. It could have been hidden in Mount Nebo, buried by a prophet, Jeremiah, uh, which is mentioned in the second book of Maccabees. Oh, you know what? It could be on Oak Island. It could be, because everything could be on Oak Island. I'd never seen the Oak Island show. It's also on the History Channel, along with Bigfoot. Which is also Channel, uh, until I was at your dad's, <laughs> and I watched, like, three-hour marathon. You got that moment of break from Fox News. And got to watch a little history channel. Well, I got the Wayne commentary to go with it. Woo! <laughs> about he would how he would have done it. Actually, he and I are planning a trip to Canada. Are you going to go to the the land of your people? Yes. Okay. Uh, it actually is around there. You know, it also could be in Ethiopia. Oh, that's a popular place. And to continue the trend, when I was a kid, I watched a documentary about <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant where they was went. Was it on the history channel? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Where they went to Ethiopia. And found it. And they went to the church where they say it is. And found it. And they wouldn't let them see it. <laughs> they still aired the documentary. It's like the most bummer documentary ever. Like when they opened Capone's vault and there was like nothing in there. You're like, oh. It was live. Oh. 
So just pat yourself on the back and tell yourself that you get points for not watching the History Channel right now and listening to us instead. Because we have the information. There are like millions of theories on where the Ark went. You've had more than 2,000 years to come up with ideas. Oh, yeah. And And this is before the internet. So I'm sure that we're like, if there were millions before, there are billions now. And of course, another um, History Channel favorite, the Knights Templar. Woo! They could have taken it from Jerusalem. And moved it to Oak Island. That's where the Oak Island connection right. comes in. Or to France. And they could have taken it to France, to Chartres Cathedral. Or there are even Islamic texts suggesting it was taken to Arabia in modern-day Yemen. Okay, so if you're looking for your Ark of the Covenant fix and you want to go hunt for the Ark, we've just given you, like, what, 70 years worth of travel destinations? Yeah, enjoy. Have fun. Enjoy. Have Sounds fun. like a good time. Let us know how it goes. Drop us a line, preferably in limerick form. Sure. And so in the third movie, in Ian Jones, in The Last Crusade. Crusade, interesting choice of words there. Yeah, which featured the great... Sean Connery, Mr. Universe himself, according to the guy at H-E-B who told you that you believe. I'm sure it's true. Yeah, I can't believe you haven't Googled that. I think it's true. You I just choose believe to believe. That. Okay, Mulder. But in that movie, they search for... The Holy Grail. Now, that's a completely novel idea. That's never been done before in history. No one's ever spent any time searching for the Holy Grail. It's kind of been done a lot. Yeah, I'm just kidding. It's yeah. really been done since there was mention of a Grail ever. And so in the movie, what's the Holy Grail? It's the Carpenter's Cup. Is it the one he drank from? Or You're right. You're, oh, spoilers. It's the Carpenter's Cup. <laughs> oh, sorry, guys. So it's the one he drank from, correct? Kind of. But is it the one that caught his blood or the one he drank from? I can never keep that straight. I feel like I'm just like a bad theologist. I I just, I've never known for sure. It's really interesting because they are two separate things that have been... Wait, what? what? So you have the Holy Grail, which was supposedly a dish that was used to catch Christ's blood as he hung from the cross. And also you have the Holy Chalice, which was the cup that Jesus used the Last Supper. So they're two distinctly different things that symbolize distinctly different moments in the Passion. Right, and it's really interesting that they're combined because in Catholic theology, there is a very important part of the theology where the wine is turned into blood. Transubstantiation. (laughs) So it's interesting that these two ideas have really been combined because one is used to catch blood, One was used to drink wine, and they became one item in general legend. That's really interesting because, you know, that seems like a detail. It seems like a a trivia point. The wine is actually turned into blood during communion. Except that there are entire branches and denominations that broke away from the Catholic Church because they didn't like that idea. (laughs) It's a main tenet of Catholicism. And the reason that a lot of protestant denominations exist today interesting combination of the two there but as you said earlier there's always been these quests for the holy grail such as in the excellent movie monty python quest for the holy grail yeah i mean that's an authoritative source basically all of our information on the grail from here on out will come from that movie so right anything about jesus life of brian that's that's where we're getting everything yeah uh we pretty much take john cleese at his word And I don't know why anyone wouldn't. Okay, so before Monty Python, if you can imagine such a thing, there were other quests. Right, and it's what Monty Python is based on. Yeah, the Arthurian legends. They've been written so many times, had so many different 
influences throughout history. So kind of before that, around the 12th century, French poet Troyer is credited with introducing the grail as a divine object in his romance. Percival. Percival. Who's Percival? He is a knight of King Arthur's court who spent a great deal of time searching for the Holy Grail. And then, of course, you have the you know the knight that is most frequently credited with searching for the Holy Grail is Galahad. Ah, yes, young Galahad. He was another of the knights. So Galahad was supposedly the son of Lancelot, who was a knight of Arthur. He was supposedly destined to be a grail bearer or to find a grail. And he had great spiritual purity. He was a better warrior than even his father, which is kind of a big deal because Lancelot was a thing, y'all. He was getting all those tokens. Mm, favors. And he, this was really solidified. And what's kind of one of the definitive texts of I, I think you could safely say it is. The tale of King Arthur. Sir Thomas Mallory's Le Morte d'Arthur in the 15th century. That, if you're looking to get your overview of Arthurian legend, that's a really great place to start. And then you will be in scholarship for like 17 years after that, if you're trying to just work out the basics. You know, in these Arthurian tales, it was said that Joseph of Arimathea brought the grail to Glastonbury in England, and he received it from an apparition of Jesus. That sounds way so Mormon, it's crazy. Doesn't it? No, but this is not official text. Yeah, it's Arthurian legend, but it's not the basis of a religion or anything. Just for convenience sake, we don't feel like going to the Holy Land. You know, Jesus is just going to come to us. So nice. Very Muhammad to the mountain and mountain to Muhammad kind of thing. We're really mixing religions. <laughs> a lot of scholars say it is a pure Catholic and Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. Other scholars say it even may have some derivation from old Celtic myths. Um, with a magical cauldron that would give you kind of life-restoring properties. You know, and as these old legends go, the powers of things kind of changed. <laughs> yeah, that happens a lot. So supposedly, it does have magical powers, though, correct? Depends on what you read. Why do people want it so much? There's that kind of power of the blood of Christ was in it. Mm -hmm. So it bring you kind of this divine power bring you life-restoring power, immortality, etc. Okay, so... Etc. Is, is very valid here because it kind of changes. Well, it's interesting because there was like a huge belief in sort of blood magic around and throughout medieval times where they believed that spiritual essence was contained in blood and there was a lot of interest in bodily fluid and kind of related to the humors. Right. Like there were four different humors. There was the sanguine, which was blood, uh, the phlegmatic, which was phlegm. Mm -hmm. Then the bilious bile is mm -hmm. melancholic. And then there's the caloric. So yeah, there was a lot of interest in that type of thing. Right. And um, it's like our bloodletting and things like that come from and blood oaths. Right. If you've heard that term in blood sacrifices, things like that. Although um, blood sacrifice has been going on a lot longer than that. But there was a resurgence of interest in it during that moment in time. A lot of people claim to have the Holy Grail. Oh, I saw a thing like as recently as April 2nd, 2016, there is a group claiming that they found the Holy Grail. Did you know that we've seen one? Really? Yeah. So... The Antioch Chalice is actually at the Met in New York. Okay. And it was for a long time considered a... Contender. For the Holy Grail. 
Okay, so why is it not anymore? Um, because they kind of looked at it and they were like, oh, this is just a standing lamp from the 6th century. Bummer. So no one actually really thinks it is anymore, but for a long time it was considered one. And you also have the Valencia Chalice, mm-hmm. and that was taken by St. Peter's to Rome and was claimed to be the chalice from the Last Supper. You also have the Genoa Chalice, and this was thought to be made of emerald. It Interesting. Was, yeah, it was an Egyptian dish. And when Napoleon was conquering everything. Yeah, as he did. Conquered Italy and brought this amazing emerald dish that caught the blood of Jesus to Paris. But they kind of like dropped it. And, no, they didn't. And found out it was just made of green glass. It's unfortunate. <laughs> Should have picked the carpenter's cup. <laughs> but then also people say this is like in Oak Island. Yeah. With the Knights Templar. As things tend to be. In Oak Island, no one's found it yet. And also buried at Roslyn Chapel. Oh, in Scotland. By the Knights Templar. Yeah, they were busy burying grails everywhere. Oh. Or Dan Brown. Yeah, Dan. And the Da Vinci Code. As Dan Brown says, it's definitely in Scotland, because I don't have the money to get to Jerusalem. The one I saw most recently was in Lyon, uh, Spain. There's one, and they've done carbon dating on it. And it appears to have pretty good provenance. It's come from Africa. And they say that, you know, it was taken, I guess, along with the Ark of the Covenant from Ethiopia up to Egypt. And that it was brought there to trade with this monastery. And they have documents that they've carbon dated that coincide with the supposed trade that are written in languages that would make sense for Ethiopia and Egypt at the time. And then they've also dated the wooden part of the chalice. And it appears to be from the right time. Did they drink from it? If they did, they're not telling. How would you resist? I wouldn't. I wouldn't and I would tell it. <laughs> but that's me. They're like, hey, Jer, hand me the wine, man. We're going to try this shit out. No, no, no. Hand me the water. I'm going to oh, see if right. it turns into wine. We don't need carbon dating. <laughs> and so those are the two big MacGuffins that are searched for in two of the Indiana Jones movies. Sorry, guys. We're going to skip Temple of Doom for this episode. Maybe another day. Maybe another day. We can talk about the human heart continuing to beat after it's pulled from someone's chest and if that's medically possible for like seven hours. That scene, like, haunted me since childhood. Me too. (laughs) So we do have this history of knights and crusaders and Galahad and the Knights Templar searching for these ancient relics. In these movies, it's really not a knight. No, it's an archaeologist. Kind of replaces that role. Yeah, I think so. Personally, when I was looking at this, that's what struck me. This has always been the heroic quest. There's always been a noble hero in search of the relic. And it really makes sense that it could easily, in modern times, be replaced by the archaeologist. You know, you get rid of the knight and you put in the archaeologist and the quest stays the same. Right, he's a learned man. Mm-hmm. He's a gentleman. Mm-hmm. Always wears his hat. Mm-hmm. Always fighting for the side of good and trying to prevent evil from taking over the world. By using the supernatural relic that he's seeking. Exactly. So there you go, folks. Indiana Jones is a modern knight. Write it down. He's a modern knight, but is he? I mean, it's just a story. It's just a movie. What do you mean? Didn't they just kind of invent this really cool heroic character? Just like they probably invented Galahad? Well, they may have invented Galahad. But they didn't invent Indiana Jones. Well, they did. Yeah, but they just kind of took the coolest parts of a bunch of really cool people. Okay. I mean, they say that they got him from cereals, but where do you think cereals got it from? 
Uh, from real life awesomeness. Okay. Let's start with a very obvious candidate who has a lot of Indiana Jones parallels. His name was Roy Chapman Andrews, and he worked for the New York Museum of Natural History around the 1920s. He was born in Wisconsin in 1884, and he was a very well-known figure at this time. People knew his name, and he was very widely regarded as kind of a badass explorer. He went to the Gobi Desert on an expedition to go look for fossilized remains of ancient humans. Didn't find those, but he did find the- The Ark of the Covenant. No, no, no. Oh. Cooler, in my opinion. He found the first dinosaur eggs. Oh, that is really cool. He brought him back to the New York Museum of Natural History, along with the bunches and bunches and bunches of dinosaur fossils he found. He found a protoceratops. He was kind of a I'll-do-it-my-way type fella, and he went into the Gobi Desert with automobiles. That just does not seem like a great idea. In the 1920s. Yeah. There were also camels and horses and things, but he like insisted that they would have automobiles and they would drive them through the Gobi Desert. So get this mental image. Camels, tents. Dodge 1920s automobiles. Excellent. And he wore a hat that kind of looks like Indiana Jones. And he was also like afraid of snakes. And when he would encounter bandits or anything while he was out uh, patrolling for his expedition in the Gobi, he would, you know, just shoot them with his pistol. He also had quite a few lady fans. Oh my. Oh my. And was the consummate explorer. So that's great. I mean, that definitely seems like it had to have given some inspiration, at least to the serials. At least to the serials. because yeah, he was in every paper. From everything I've read, it seems like he was a household name. Right, and he brought a cinematographer <laughs> along with him. So it's all documented. You can watch these videos, and they are amazing. You can see the camels and the automobiles in the Gobi Desert. I could just see the, like, serial, the newsreel. In front of the movie with, like, the little paper spinning and his face on it. Mm -hmm. And then, like, the camels and the Gobi Desert and then him finding the fossils. Well, and you can make an argument that this tradition, the tradition of the night, was naturally inherited by explorers. Because you have, you know, the explorers who are finding new worlds and things who are out for God, glory, and gold. And they have this nationalist pride attached to them. And they're bringing the gospels with them and they're doing all these things. And so you have that kind of explorer who's an object of national pride, and it naturally evolves into this kind of explorer, who's, you know, working for one museum, but also for his country. So another explorer at this time period was Percy Fawcett. That sounds like a made-up name. No, he looks made up, too. He looks, <laughs> he looks awesome. He's got this Stetson hat that he'd wear low, and this just amazing, miraculous mustache <laughs> that I'm sure he twirled. He had to have. And so he's a villain, you're saying? No, no, he was a good guy. Okay. He's a good twirling mustachioed man. He was British, mm -hmm. and he was half Indian. His father was Indian and a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society. Okay. And his brother was a mountain climber and an Eastern occultist. <laughs> and okay. wrote, wrote many books about the topic. About the topic of occultism. Yes, not mountain climbing. Okay. <laughs> Maybe. So you can see his influences. He also was friends with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and some of his adventures were used as inspiration for The Lost City. That's terribly fascinating. So what did he explore? What were his, like... Well, first, he did have a military background. He joined the Royal Artillery, and then went into the British Secret Service in North 
Africa mm-hmm. during World War One. Before World War One, he was a surveyor and he spent time in South America. In his trips to South America, he started developing some theories about a lost city of a great civilization that had never been discovered yet. It sounds like straight up Jules Verne fantasy nonsense. Well, it literally was the inspiration for some of them. So this theory became known as the Lost City of Z. Does it sound familiar? Yeah, I think that's a book, right? Right, it is a recent book. Yeah, I remember you reading that. And so in 1925, he received funding from a London organization called The Glove. Oh, God, it sounds like a uh, James Bond villain or something. Right. Uh, and he re- returned to Brazil with his son and his son's friend, so just those three, mm-hmm. to search for this lost city. It sounds like it's going to end terribly. Yeah, he kind of disappeared. Are you kidding me? He just disappeared. No one knows what happened to him. Not they even act- his son or the... No, but they died too. Well, they died. Or disappeared. Aliens. Well, there are a million theories about it. They sent tons of people looking for him. A lot of people died looking for him. In The Lost City of Z, which is an excellent book, if you're interested in this, you should pause and... Go read go it. Go read it. All right. Pretty good, right? It was like, it's interesting, but like kind of weird, right? And so in that book, as you just read, you find out that the city may have been real. Yeah, what? Actually, no. Yeah, actually, Michael um, Heckenberger, an archaeologist, recently found a large a site that could have possibly been the city related to a large civilization in the same area. And it's like where he said it would be? Oh, in the area. Cool. Right, isn't that kind of interesting? So he actually really had good ideas because he had a lot of relations with the local tribes. Of course, there were tribes that he got along with, tribes that he didn't get along with. And a lot of people, including some of the natives, think that he was killed by some of the... Other natives? Yes, the nice, not nice ones. And they actually, one of the tribes actually has an oral history about him. About this white explorer that came searching for this city. That they warned about this more angry tribe <laughs> that was down the way. And he said, I've got this, you guys. No big deal. Yes. He, as, he, as he combed his mustache, he pulled his Stetson hat down, rode off into the sunset to never be seen again. But it's interesting for the, the, for the last hundred years, they've passed along this oral history about it. Yeah. No, I mean, it seems memorable. So I will see you, your lost British explorer, and raise you... The most interesting man in the world. The guy from the Dos Equis commercials? Basically. So, there was this fellow, and his name was Frederick Russell Burnham. And he was an American, born on the Lakota Sioux Reservation in Minnesota. That's the start of a movie. (laughs) It is, honey. Oh, just buckle up. In 1861. So, his dad was a Presbyterian minister, and they were there as missionaries. And his father had gone into town one day, into Montauk, which is still there. And his mom was at home with her infant. And there were some nasty things going on with the tribe. And they, the natives were restless. And they were going to attack this settlement of missionaries. So she looks out her window and sees the Sioux approaching in their war paint. And she knows what's up. And she decides that there's no way she can escape on foot because obviously the horse is with the husband. She hides her infant under some corn stalks in the backyard. This is Burnham. 
and runs away. Is he raised by wolves? No, basically. They, she comes back and the house has been burned to the ground. But she goes and looks under the corn stalks and the baby's there and he's totally okay. Lucky. Lucky. Lucky break. She's not getting the Mother of the Year award for that one, but maybe she should. Different times, I guess. So this is his start in life. And it seems very Moses in a ba- basket, but it, it gets weirder. So his dad dies when he's about 12 and they're in California now. And he has to stay in California, even though his mom and his little brother moved back to Iowa. He's got to stay there and work to pay off his family's debts. And so he starts working with the telegraph company, like with Wells Fargo, delivering messages. And then he starts training as a scout while he's just a boy. This is going to come up later. He trains with these people who are working during the Apache Wars to track down their chief, who is... Geronimo. Yes, Geronimo. So he, like, learns to smell the burning fumes of aloe that they use as remedies, and he can apparently smell them six miles away. And he learns to tell time at night and where to find water in a desert and the proper way to braid rope and tie knots and how to saddle and unsaddle a horse and all these things from these old timers, these old West heroes, etc., He gets quite a reputation for being an incredible scout. People begin to call him he who sees in the dark. And so he spends his youth tracking natives. And he has a great quote where he's like, the most important thing for any scout to know is the ways, customs, superstitions, and practices of those that are tracking them that they are to be tracking. That's so good. I know. I love it. He does this for a while, and then he becomes a prospector, uh, and he you know, becomes independently wealthy through his success as a prospector and finding gold, etc. And then he decides that the West is kind of over. He's like, you know what? They've closed expansion. No more pioneers coming. All of my old scout masters are in Wild West shows fighting fake Indians. And I don't want to be part of this. The West is basically just so tame and meek now. Mind you, this is in the 1880s. So he hears about this effort going on in Africa to build a railroad. And he decides that Africa sounds like a lot more savage and that it's probably the place to go. So he packs up his wife and his son and they move to Africa. Sounds like a great idea. Yeah. Does he go there for a reason? Like, is he? Well, he's going to go help with the building of this railroad as a scout. Okay. And so he gets there and the British military kind of finds out about him. And they're like, we know you're not British or anything, but you want to come work for us? And he's like, I guess so. So he gets involved with the British military as a scout. And he is there during what are called uh, the Montebelle Wars. And they are these really savage, brutal wars that are going on between British nationals and the local Matabele tribes. The first war doesn't go so well. The second war is where he really gets involved. And the Matabele have this spiritual leader named Milmo. They believe that he's a divine being. He is all-powerful. He is the source of their power. Things such as this. He's badass. And so one day, Burnham decides to put a stop to all this fighting. And he sneaks into a cave and waits. And Milmo, who's described as a giant of a man, about 60 years old and with a crafty, rugged face, comes in 
and he starts doing his dance of invincibility Ooh. in front of a fire. Ooh. And as he's calling on his gods and shaking and shimmying and all of these things, Burnham shoots him. Like in Indiana Jones. Yeah. <laughs> Burnham shoots this guy and it kind of just like ends the war. So I actually. You actually shot a spiritual leader once in a cave? We don't talk about that. <laughs> this name actually rings a bell for two reasons. Are they Catholic bells? No Catholic bells. One is, this is who Alan Quatermain is based off of. Yeah. And Alan Quatermain is a contemporary hero in that kind of same time period of like Sherlock Holmes and Jules Verne novels and a pulp hero, right? Like yeah, if you want to call him pulp, fiction. yeah, genre fiction is probably a better yeah. term. You know what? Sean Connery played him in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Okay. Well, well that's extraordinary. Right. Yeah. Not the movie wasn't. No, but the graphic novels are. Yeah, Alan Moore. Alan Moore. Cray cray. Oh, that's a whole <laughs> episode of crazy right there. But anyway. Another reason I know him, he is part of my favorite ephemera story. Okay. And that is the hippos. I know about the hippos. The hippos. Oh my God, we haven't even gotten to the spies and stuff. We'll have to come back. Let's talk about the hippos for a minute. (laughs) During his time in Africa, Burnham noticed this large mammal that looked like just food, 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 right? The hippo. Man, we can cook that up in a gumbo shy. (laughs) So the only people in the world who are like, man, we can cook that up in a gumbo shy are in Louisiana. (laughs) Well, yeah, right. And so his thought at the time, was that he could take this large animal and raise it for meat in a place that would be unsuitable for any other animal to be raised in. Which is naturally... Louisiana. Louisiana. (laughs) So he wanted to import lots of hippos to the swamps of Louisiana to start a new hippo meat... Empire. Empire. (laughs) And he had the support of a Louisiana senator. Mm-hmm. Yes, Broussard. Uh, also, Fritz Duquesne. Fritz Duquesne. That sounds familiar, too. Yeah. He was kind of the head of aspiring. What do you mean? Well, that's part of Burnham's later life. So after Burnham finishes his tour of duty in the Matabele Wars, he goes to the Yukon, obviously, to find more gold, because that's what you do in your in-between time if you're Burnham. And he gets a telegram from Cape Town. And they ask him to come be the chief of scouts in South Africa. And so he naturally, even though he's in Alaska, just says, sure, and goes. And he's captured like four times and like helps out with some battles and stuff and escapes every time he's captured. But he's eventually wounded pretty severely. And he comes back to Britain and he's given the second highest military honor that can be bestowed on anyone in the British military, even though he's kind of American and he's never lived in Britain ever. But, you know, then he goes back to America and kind of helps found the Boy Scouts and things and also does a lot of counter espionage. And so that's where we get to Fritz Duquesne. He was rounded up after World War II as the head of the Duquesne Ring, and it's the largest arrest ever of spies on American soil. So he worked with the Germans in World War I and II, and the chief informant about him pretty much ever was was Burnham. 
So Nazi hippos. Na- Nazi hippos. Oh my god, I'm so excited we're going to talk about Nazi hippos. He and Baden-Powell, who founded the Boy Scouts, were like best of friends. And he was instrumental in writing up some of the tenets of the Boy Scouts. Right, he helped bring it to the U.S. Because mm-hmm. Baden-Powell was British. Right. And so when they named Mount Baden-Powell... In 1950, they went back and named the mountain beside it, Mount Burnham. Oh, so they could be friends Friends forever. forever. (laughs) And now we've ended that incredibly badass story (laughs) on the silliest note ever. Welcome to the show, new new listeners. (laughs) Welcome to the show. Oh, I've got another one for you. Okay. Otto, Ron. Okay, that is a whole other ball of wax, kid. If we start talking about Nazis... Nazis. Nazis. I hate, I hate Nazis. Nazis. If we start talking about Nazis, we could be here all month. We could literally sit here and record for 10 hours. Okay, here's the deal. I will get into Nazis with you, but I say we keep it kind of confined to the relics, and we talk about just Nazis as they relate to esoteric archaeology. We've got a dial it to one little specific spot because you could literally talk about Nazis forever. Okay, you want us to talk that's, about I mean, Nazis that's, forever? That's, like, that's literally what the History Channel has done. The Hitler Channel? Yeah. And the, oh, okay, so if if you would like us to talk about Nazis for 10 hours, we will. And we will do so if we get, like, how many requests? Like A thousand. No, come on, like five. Like five <laughs> requests? <laughs> Like, if five people are like, yes, please do the episode, please do your 10-hour Nazi special, I'm doing it. Okay, I will not edit it. Believe it or not, <laughs> believe it or not, I do edit this art of the show. <laughs> Some of the rambling is taken out. Yes, yeah, so, like, if you want to hear the Nazi special edition, like, like, yes, they actually did this shit, special edition. Like which, Nazi cows? Oh, my God. Can, I could talk about Nazi cows for, like, 10 hours. Just Nazi cows. You mean killer Nazi cows? Killer Nazi cows in Britain? Oh, my God. A man in Britain is having... Oh, we got... Mm, no. Save it. <laughs> okay, so Otto Ron. So he was a Nazi, right? He was a reluctancy. What would the Nazis have to do with all this anyway? Okay, we're going to have to start at the beginning. So... You know what a Nazi is. They're bad guys. Yeah, the bad guys. In Indiana Jones. But actually, there's more to them than that. They were also really into... Well, Hitler. Hitler's... For all intents and purposes, the king of the Nazis. He was quite into the occult and mysticism. He believed that he was divinely appointed to inherit all of Germany's powers and to rule the world as Germany's leader. So flawed premise from the beginning because he was Austrian, but whatever. Angry Austrian artist gets a hold of Germany. How? How does this happen? Oh, we are not going into that. (laughs) No, I mean, okay, narrow your scope. Let's just talk about the occult stuff, right? Okay. okay. Mystically speaking, how does this happen? Well, he does get involved with this magician. This magician. Okay, so he gets involved with Diedrich Eckhart. Diedrich Eckhart was involved with the Thule Society, which is another episode, and also a really big believer in the idea that Germans, proper Germans, were descended from an ancient Aryan race of man. So the idea of an Aryan race is really interesting. They're Atlanteans. 
Well, that was like one guy. Okay, well, Hitler's like one guy, but <laughs> let's not parse. So the term comes from an Indo-Iranian term meaning kind of noble. Noble. Mm. And at that time, it was thought as a self-designation for this proto-Indo-Europeans. And they're called Indo-Europeans because they were these original kind of Germanic tribes that were said to kind of be really conquesters and they you know took over Europe and India one of the reasons why the swastika is used but it was based on really a misinterpreted reference in the Rig Veda by western scholars in the 19th century and was kind of adopted as a racial category through the work of Arthur de Gobineau who really based his ideology of race on this blonde northern european aryans who migrated across the world and founded all the major civilizations for being of course degraded through racial mixture with local populations they were like really awesome and they won at all the things yeah they were like the most coolest guys ever in europe okay and then like they like mixed with like not so awesome people and then they couldn't be awesome anymore right I'm not seeing any connection here. I'm not seeing where this plays in at all. Okay, except that it's the entire basis for the Nazi extermination of the Jews. So Eckhart is a big believer in this idea that Germany was undermined by the interbreeding with less noble races. And he is also really into the occult. And he introduces Hitler to Erich Jan Hanussen. And Honusen is a magician and an occultist. He's a stage magician. In addition to his occulty stuff, yes. But he's the person who actually teaches Hitler how to command an audience. And I remember, like, in my history book and, like, AP history in high school, pictures of Hitler, like, practicing his different movements and facial expressions. Right, because he believed it was very important to be able to reach every member of the audience and he was a very dynamic speaker, but I don't think he was born that way. He was taught to be that way by this occultist, crazy person. So through his dealings with Hanussen, oh, by the way, Mein Kampf is actually dedicated to Dietrich. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, and that's neat. So through his dealings with Hanussen, he gets exposed to more and more kind of occulty ideas. Hanussen actually tracks down a mandrake root for Hitler. Like in Harry Potter. And uh, Pan's Labyrinth is what I always oh, think yeah. about. That's so creepy. So Mandrake Root is supposed to bring virility and stuff to whoever possesses it. Hanussen tells Hitler that as long as he keeps his little Mandrake Root with him, and as long as they stay friends, the Third Reich will reign for a thousand years. But Hitler kind of doesn't like some of the other predictions that Hanussen's making, and so he kind of has him killed. And so the pact is broken, which brings about the second part of Hanussen's prophecy, that is, if Hitler severs the bond between any of the three of them, Hanussen, the Mandrake Root, and Hitler, the Reich will fall in 12 years. And it, it does. So, in 12 years? Yeah, to the day. Ah, interesting. Isn't that fun? So if Hitler liked the occult, his, his second in command, Himmler loved the occult. Himmler. Oh my god, the crazy chicken farmer. Chicken farmer? Yeah. Yeah, he was a he was a chicken farmer. He had taken up that the notion that was propagated by the Nazi party that 
it was our responsibility to return to nature and the old ways of life and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, he was basically the first wave of hipster, if you want to look at it that way. Like, he moved out and went back to basics and started a chicken farm. There you go, guys. He also wore hipster glasses. Did he smoke Native American spirits? I'm pretty sure. Oh. He also thought he was better than everybody. Yeah, he did. <laughs> oh. In 1935, Himmler founded Anunarba. The Anunarba, that is uh, that which is inherited from our forefathers, Yes, and its mission was to unearth evidence of the Aryan race, which is, of course, this fictional Nordic race from Northern Europe. There really was a guy in this organization that believed they were from Atlantis. There really was. I'm not making it up. Uh, so, like, that's why Aquaman's blonde, obviously. Aquaman's not blonde anymore. Oh, and the Nazis are spinning in their little catacombs. If, if they could only see Jason Momoa's doing with the character now, they would be sore. He looks so badass. Anyway. He does. But he wanted to prove it with real science. Oh, enter real science. And so, you know, they study texts and runes and all sorts of books. He then, in 1938, added in an excavation arm where they added kind of archaeology to it, and they actually financed 18 excavations, including an ancient hill fortress in Prussia and a major Viking trading post in northern Germany. And they actually did find some actual interesting scientific things, such as they found red ochre paint, which is one of the first evidence of, of cave paintings. Interesting. In Europe. They went to Tibet also. Yeah. And I I guess they were looking for proof of white people in Tibet. Right, because, like I said, the German, proto-German people went and, of course, invaded that area. Oh, okay. And took over. And, and they were looking for, you know, Shambhala. Sh- what? It's a mystical city. In Tibet. Yeah. And so they went Nepal. to in, in Nepal, and they went to Nepal, and they were going to find, one, white people. And right, two, evidence of Aryans. And also Shambhala. Right, and they did a lot of anthropometric measurements of the natives, trying to show that they were mixed with Aryans. So they'd, like, measure their skull and measure their different features. You know, they also did that when they were kidnapping children for Lebensborn to prove their Aryan heritage. Well, they also did it to the Jews in the concentration camps. Yeah, they were big on the anthropometric measurements. Real science. <sighs> anyway. Well, and so one archaeologist that was part of this was Asin Boomer, and he claimed that he could trace Nordic origins all the way back to the Paleolithic era in Germany, when there were woolly mammoths and cave bears on this chilled tundra. Is this where I get to talk about the oryx? Nazi cows. Ah, it's Nazi cow time, folks! Okay, in this party of infinite crazy that we are apparently going to be joining briefly. You can join the Nazi party. (laughs) I'm not. I didn't mean the actual, like, political party. I meant we were going to, like, entertain their ideas for a half hour. There was this notion that in order for the Nazi men, the SS officers, and the true Aryans to return to their divine provenance, they needed to have a pure forest. 
And in this forest, there needed to be beasts that could actually challenge these Aryan men. Right, because no beast could challenge an Aryan man. Let's not be silly. I mean, like, obviously, in a fist fight, Hitler's going to kick a lion's ass. But not Captain America. <laughs> no. Captain America was a super soldier, okay? That's another episode. Yeah. There were these brothers, and their last name was Heck, and they were working on a program to kind of revive this ancient ox called an oryx. And they were doing this through interbreeding certain species of cows and trying to get them back to their original vigor and size. And oryx is a real thing. It is a real thing. They were giant ox, basically, right? Like, I mean, is there... Yeah, that roamed the forests, like, in Poland. Mm Mm-hmm. And this was used as one of the many, many, many reasons to kindly ask Poland to join them. Because that's what they did. Yeah. And then they kindly ask all of the people who lived in this forest that they wanted to take to make a hunting ground of mythical creatures, basically. To die. To die. (laughs) So, yeah, they, they did. They kind of went in and exterminated all the inhabitants of this forest. And then they brought in these cattle. That they'd been breeding. And so there were these giant cattle. There are pictures of them online. You can Google Hitler's cows. I suggest you do. Um, Some great memes. Amazing memes. But there are also pictures of them standing by these cows. And some of them, um, like men, are coming up to their shoulder. They're huge. And they have really imposing horns. Not like Texas Longhorn imposing. No, nothing. Nothing like that. They do face forward, however, and they are quite scary looking. So they populate the forest with these cows. Do they have plans to do other animals? Yes. I can't remember which other animals at the moment. Eventually, of course, they wanted to go back through all of the legends of, like, Siegfried, etc. And find all of the beasts that he fought and put them in the forest one way or another. So they were big into, like, genetic engineering. Not just for people. Everything. Everything. That was one of Himmler's many... Many. That was Goebbels. Oh. Goebbels wanted to hunt. He was a major hunter. Himmler had some other interesting ideas. <sighs> Himmler, the crazy chicken farmer, did indeed have some crazy ideas. So he was the head of the SS. They were the Nazi elite. They had to prove their Aryan heritage back at least four generations. Right, they had to sign an oath. To only marry an Aryan woman. And that they had no interbreeding in their family history to their knowledge and um, which is interesting because knights used to have to prove their nobility himmler liked to base the elite group of his ss officers on the teutonic knights yes now the teutonic knights are a real thing again we kind of keep saying that because it's kind of unbelievable all of it's kind of unbelievable they were german knights who were kind of analogous to the knights templar Right, they're around in that time period, they're in the Crusades, they helped pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem, they ran hospitals, they also fought in lots of wars. Right, and they also had a very big mystical element. Right, and that classic black and white cross that the SS uses is the symbol. symbol for them. There's a lot of speculation that he was actually trying to revive the order proper. Unfortunately, because of the Nazi penchant for burning documents, we don't have anything written on that. But he took over the city of Nuremberg and decided to base his operations there. And he chose Nuremberg 
because it was a pure German city and it kind of had that classic look to it. He was big into aesthetics and he also was a big fan of the way that the castle there looked and that's the Valesburg Castle. What was so special about this castle? It was triangular, which is something he really dug. And it also had a big circular keep that looked a lot like the keep, the Grail Castle, in several depictions of Percival. Right, and he actually remodeled the castle. To look more like that. Very influenced by the Arthurian legends. Right, so his other remodelings, he built this meditation room. Which is weird. Which had an eternal flame and 12 pedestals for his knights to sit and meditate on the eternal flame. So that's not creepy. And he had uh, (laughs) mosaics of runes. He also had a tea set with runes commissioned. He was big into magical runes. One of the things his archaeologists were sent to look for were runes on these ancient dig sites to prove that these people, these Aryans, lived there at one time. So he took over the castle. Then his... Soldiers and archaeologists systematically plundered all the nations that they were asking nicely to join them and amassed an incredible amount of priceless artwork and artifacts. In all of this nicely asking for things, did they get any sort of mystical objects? Well, I'm going to have to tell you a story. There were some Americans who were former German nationals who had left at the beginning of the Nazi rise to power. And among them was a man named Horn. And he was interrogating a prisoner. And the prisoner started talking about art and artifacts and these wonderful things he'd seen. Horn's ears perked up because he was a professor of art history at Berkeley. And this is all chronicled in the book. Hitler's Holy Relics, which despite its very cheesy title, is actually very well written and based on documents the art historian himself had written in hopes of one day compiling a book before he died, but he died before the book could be written. So it has excellent provenance and some really unusual and interesting information. This man starts talking about this bunker, this underground treasure trove that he'd been in charge of guarding before his arrest or capture. That seems interesting. And so Horn writes a memorandum and sends it to Patton and it gets picked up. And then he gets picked up, and he gets sent to the city. And he's taken to Nuremberg, where he walks through the streets after this massive destruction has occurred, while the Americans are busily trying to get the city together for the trials. They're trying to make it look presentable to the rest of the world at this point. And in the middle of all this rubble, he's led to a little cobblestone street called Blacksmith's Alley. And they walk down Blacksmith's Alley, and they come to a sign... It says antiques, new and old, and they walk inside, and then they go downstairs. And there is a bunker that has been constructed out of the former beer tunnels that connect directly to the Valspark Castle. They've even created a rudimentary form of air conditioning controlled by manned pumps. And here's where all the Nazi art and artifacts went. Well, not all of it. A lot of it. Right, because Hitler had been collecting all this art because he was going to build a super museum. 
As house. all things in Nazi Germany are, this museum was going to be quite super. Well, it was going to be the size of a city mm-hmm. and house all of the world's greatest art. Now, he was a frustrated art student himself. He survived for a while painting watercolors in Vienna. He's never accepted to art school. All of this mess could have been avoided if he'd been a little better at art. But he at least appreciated art and therefore didn't destroy it all. He kept some. He just killed the people that had it. Yeah. Wait, so in this art trove, what did they find? There was, like, the Gimp altarpiece. There was a beautiful altar from Vienna that's incredibly valuable that actually kind of maybe made Pope John Paul II happen, but that's another story. And the crown jewels of the Holy Roman Empire. Holy shit. Yeah. These were possessed by the Habsburg family until Hitler nicely asked them to join him. At which time... Hey, Austria. Let's be buddies. Yeah. Uh, At which time Hitler promptly took possession of them. Now there's a crown and a dagger and a sepulcher and a robe and just, you know, just the Spear of Destiny. No big deal. The Spear of Destiny? (laughs) The Spear of Destiny. I know what the Spear of Destiny is. Okay, Catholic, what's the Spear of Destiny? So the Spear of Destiny is, supposedly, the spear that pierced the side of Jesus. Now, so whenever he was, again, hanging on the cross, when they were like, hmm, is he dead? You know, normally we break their legs to make sure that they're dead. But this time, we're pretty sure he's dead. So let's just poke his side of the spear. Sounds and, legit. Yeah, and so a centurion. Longinus. Yeah, which that's not in the Bible. And the book of John pierces his side to show that he's dead. Again, more kind of blood symbolism. That spear goes on to be in the hands of lots of great people, including... Emperor Constantine. And within the spear is a nail, which is said to be one of the nails of the crucifixion. Or maybe they broke it one day and needed to patch it, and so they kind of, like, put the nail on some stuff. (laughs) Yeah, it had been altered a few times, and things were added to it to make it look more fancy. Like a golden band around it with an inscription about the nail that pierced the Lord. But anyway, it's important. It's like a, it's a deal. But, Um, But it's more than just a deal. It's more than just a maybe really cool relic. And just like the Ark having great powers and the Holy Grail having great powers, and the reason the Nazis were after it, it also had a legend to it. According to legend, whoever held the spear held the destiny of the world in their hands. And they were guaranteed military success, and they were, for all intents and purposes, invincible. And these all sounded like pretty cool stuff to Hitler. Well, there are lots of conspiracy theories saying that Hitler started World War II just to get his hands on the Spear of Destiny. Basically. Seems like overkill to me. Well, overkill and Hitler are kind of synonymous. I guess you're right. (laughs) So maybe it's not that crazy? Himmler supposedly organized an entire plan to reconstruct the city of Nuremberg to create a spear shape using the Valsberg Castle as the tip of the spear. Right, which was triangularly shaped. Yes, which is another reason he was really into the triangle. Illuminati. Yes, oh my god. The historian gets down there and sees that 
the jewels have been stolen and his job is to find the jewels. But for some reason, the Spear of Destiny is still there. He does find the jewels eventually. Spoiler alert. Really good book. Suggest anyone who's interested in this, go read it. And after you join us, we will continue our discussion. Really interesting stuff, right? Okay. Yes. Himmler's very into the occulty stuff. He also has like the death's head rings he gives to the officers, which are to be returned after that and a symbol of eternal power and all such as that. You know, you got the Spear of Destiny, and he was looking for some of these relics that were in the Indiana Jones movies. Now, there's no actual written documentation that they were looking for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, like we said, lots of documents were burned. Of course, there's all kind of theories saying that they were, but there's a lot of documentation that they were after the Holy Grail. In this story, there has to be... A noble knight, right? There has to be somebody we can get behind. A reluctant knight that has a crisis of faith. And I think that somebody is Otto Ron. When I first started reading about him, I was like, there's a reason we don't hear this story. Because he makes me put a human face on the Nazis. They aren't just laughably bad. He was a young man who was searching for the Holy Grail. Really? Before Hitler ever got involved, he was obsessed with Parseval, and he believed using that legend that he could find the location of the Holy Grail. And he believed that the Cathars, which were occult, kind of heretical Christians, but he believed that they'd brought it to France. And he spent a lot of time in France looking for this Grail. So he went to France and was looking for the Grail, and as the Nazi party was coming to power... Himmler heard that there was a good German boy out there looking for the Grail. And so naturally, he made him an, an SS officer. He politely asked him to join. And there's actually writing that Ron did to one of his friends. He's like, what was I going to say? No. Right. He definitely did not want to join this group. He was, he was politely asked, as Austria and Poland were, <laughs> to join the SS and basically had to agree. And he did. He published a book about the Holy Grail that had some moderate commercial success in Germany at the time. It was very well known what he was doing. And he was kind of well known. And so once he was, can we say conscripted? Once he was conscripted to join the SS, he toured Germany and gave lectures and did a little more looking for the Grail. And then he kind of had a falling out with Himmler. Because he didn't find it. He didn't find it. Also, there were some rumors that he was homosexual, and that was not really... Aryans were not homosexual. (laughs) Definitely not homosexual. How would you create the master race? Exactly. Well, first they tried to send him to Lebensborn to sire future generations of Aryans, which that's going to have to be another episode. When that didn't straighten him out, they tried to get him to get married, and that didn't seem to go over well either, and then he was sent to Dachau. The concentration camp. Yeah, that one. Whenever I started doing my reading, I've always assumed that Auschwitz was the pinnacle of, like, all things awful and terrible. But, oh my god, the stuff that went on at Dachau. Dachau's where a lot of the medical experiments were done. But yeah, Dachau was awful. And so he was sent there, and he was there for six weeks, and he couldn't take it anymore. He wrote, asking to be relieved of duty, and wrote his friend, he's like, as a liberal-minded man... I cannot take part in this. He's like, what they're doing there is terrible. And so he wrote and said, may I please be released? And 
Himmler wrote back and said, yes. That's it. That's all. And signed it. But there was a very big implication that if you were to leave the SS, the only honorable thing to do, the only decent thing to do, would be to kill yourself. And one day he walked up into the mountains and did. So reluctant Nazi, searching for the Holy Grail. Who doesn't find it? So maybe it's not Indiana Jones, maybe it's not the most interesting man in the world, but it's very human. It's very sad. So is it just a story? Yeah, it's just a story. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 